why we do that uh, when we talk about the liturgy aspect of the Disciple Center. But at this point, we are in a uh, series that introduces and explains us. Uh, the purpose of the series being to remind and reinforce us of what we are doing here and to help us to explain to others who uh, are curious or who want to pattern their own congregation in this manner. Uh, the first sermon that I did in the series, I talked about our name. I talked about the emblems of the um, Disciple Center logo. Last week we covered the... Um, the idea of a relational community. And in that context, I talked about what community was as a spiritual kinship, a covenant of commitment, and a relational set of roles and rules. And I also talked about us being a gathering of households rather than individuals. And I suggested that scope and the type of households that might make up a relational community of faith. I really expected more response about the... Uh, uh, the uh, monastery convent comments and, and the hermit comments, but uh, didn't, get, didn't get much response from that. We'll see what happens now that that's out on the, uh, on the Internet. Um, uh, today we want to talk about the idea of a private congregation. Uh, that may be the most controversial part of who we are and certainly the most difficult to explain, though I have difficulty understanding why that's the case. Uh, it, it tells me in some sense uh, over the last weekend as um, uh, I've been listening to conversations between those of us who were alive and at least youth or adults when President Kennedy was assassinated and those who were kindergarten or infants and those who weren't born yet and the perspectives are very different. And so having grown up where congregations were traditionally seen as private uh, to now where they're seen as predominantly public, uh, I see the distinction. Some people don't because they've been the frog in the water and it's just shifted on them and they weren't paying attention anyway. And others were born into this context and think that what we're doing is something radical or new. Uh, believe me, there's very little at the Disciple Center that we do that's new. Um, normally, I look back in history and find something in the tradition and bring it forward. Um, I'm not an innovator. Uh, I'm a systematizer, but not an innovator. I'm not trying to create something new. I'm trying to restore something. Okay? You, you may have seen that painting where um, uh, this classic painting of Jesus that was in a place that was historically restored. They make it look exactly as it did. And some woman came in to restore it and just painted over it and made it look like a cartoon. Um, and there are people who, who hate that that which was originally placed was destroyed. And there are people who kind of like the cartoon, right? Uh, so there's taste and personal preference. But my approach is to bring to us the tools of the past and give us the opportunity to make use of them as we need in this context. So let me again read our statement that, uh, that uh, was posted uh, before. The Disciple Center Congregation, a private Judeo-Christian community of faith. 
The Disciple Center congregation is a relational, talked about that last week, liturgical, I will talk about that later, multi-denominational gathering of households in community for mutual worship, discipleship, ministry, and reconciliation. We are Judeo-Christian in theology and practice. We function as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of the members and to maintain focus on discipleship. Members of the congregation also participate in public ministry beyond the congregation as an extension of the congregational ministry and in concert with other congregations, ministry organizations, and fellow believers. We also seek to provide witness to the message of God through our lives and activities by intentional living and explaining the gospel, the good news, found in Jesus to the Jew first and also to all people. So today we're going to talk about being a private uh, community of faith. Uh, and to do that, I have to talk about uh, the kingdom of God and the centrality of the land of Israel to the biblical text. We'll talk about that. And then we have to talk about the idea of diaspora and nationalism, because that relates to this issue of privacy as well. And finally, the importance of the privacy-public distinction. So before we do that, I want to read a passage that that encompasses all of this, and it's uh, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Uh, It is a prayer uh, of the Lord, uh, praying to the Father about those who would believe in Him. And He says uh, in this passage, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished except the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, they may have my joy made full in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask for you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, make them holy, In the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but on those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, uh, this notion of Jesus being sent into the world and not being of the world. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. Uh, and then saying, the ones who believe in me are not in this world. They've been called out of the world. Um, and I am sending them back into the world. I'm not taking them completely out, but they're no longer of the world. And, and you have grown up hearing the phrase, in the world, but not of it. When the reality is, 
For the most part in the American church, we are of the world but not in it. What we have done is we have separated us from the world and done what the world does, doing a Christian version of it, thinking that the world will join us. That is not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about us not being completely isolated from people, but to walk differently and therefore make God kadosh and be kadosh in the midst of that world. We have done that poorly, uh, in part because we haven't understood it, and in part because in recent times we have thought that the best way to reach people is to reach them in a way they understand. It came out of the 60s. We have to be relevant. You shall be relevant, for I am relevant. I don't know that verse, but that's the, that's the teaching. You shall be kadosh, for I am kadosh, because something that is distinct, not weird, something that is unique, not, not strange, but is actually uh, gives a different message, will be noticed. And if trusted, it will be followed. But that's not exactly how we're doing this. So, today I want to talk about the kingdom of God and the centrality of the land of promise. Uh, and you'll say, what does that have to do with private? We'll get there. And then I want to talk about diaspora nationalism that builds off of that notion of the land. And then finally, I want to talk about private and public in that context. Because most people think of private and public not in the context of what the scripture is talking about, but in the context of uh, private uh, as in secret and public as in open. And those are different concepts. So, let's begin with the idea of the kingdom and the promised land. I'm not going to take you through a Bible study on this because we've done it before. I'm just going to remind you of these moorings so that you'll know why we're staying within a certain context. (coughs) And the sneeze had to happen. I just never know when it's going to happen. So, uh, we have to remember the story of the Bible. I gave you that uh, overview of what God is doing, the story of God, several weeks ago. I hope that you continue to read that and get that firmly locked into your mind. Um, We have to remember that the Bible is the story of, now this is true of the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, it is the story of a holy God, a kadosh God, a holy people, and a holy land. If you don't keep that in mind, you will turn the Bible into a book of salvation. It includes salvation, but its focus is on the holy God, the holy people, and the holy land. It begins with that and it ends with that in terms of the redemption that is being talked about. So, who is the holy God? Well, the holy God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and that is, in a sense, the benchmark of which God we're talking about. I have a lot of fun with Uh, people who are atheists who will come to me and say, you know, I don't believe in God. And I say, you know, I don't either. Zeus, I've never believed in him. They go, what are you talking about? 
Because the reality is, they don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of us believe in those other nonsense gods. So there really is a struggle here. And yet a lot of believers don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe in just any God. I, I once prayed at a uh, city council for a mayor. And uh, I, I prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the name of Jesus. And a reporter grabbed me afterwards and said, didn't they tell you not to use Jesus' name, not to talk that way? And I said, I don't pray to whom it may concern. I don't pray to whoever's up there. He's the only one I know, and I identified him. We have to do that. The, the God that we worship is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not a God of our own making, and not a God of our own interpretation. Secondly, who are the holy people? The holy people are the whole house of Israel, who are the chosen of God, and who can be identified by two signs. Both of those signs are necessary. One is lineage, a lineage that comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had other sons, so it's a specific lineage. And who engage in the covenant of God made at Sinai. Both of those signs are necessary. Almost like kosher. You know, it has to divide the hoof and chew the cud. It has, has to have fins and scales. There are two signs. One doesn't cut it. Okay? Uh, a, the, the Israel of God is those who are uh, from Abraham and embrace the covenant. Uh, just being children of Abraham doesn't cut it. And that's why the scripture says, don't say we have Abraham for our father. God is able to make uh, children of Abraham from these stones. Now, you can't remove that part, but it's a necessary but not sufficient part. To be the people of God requires both of those signs. I don't have time to address that anymore. If you want to bring it up at the Q&A, we can do that. Or at another time, that's fine. Um, Paul suggests this unique uh, lineage uh, and covenant issue in the book of Romans. Uh, and so I'll refer you to, to Paul, who knows this much better than I do. The Holy Land is a part of uh, this notion and is often forgotten in Christian theological history. Now, there was a time when the church focused on the issue of the land, but it didn't really focus on the land. It focused on the holy sites within the land and brought us the Crusades. Not a particularly good emphasis in Christian history. Uh, because the Crusaders did damage to fellow believers, to Jews, and to Muslims, and to the cause of the Lord in trying to protect the holy sites. And it didn't work. So, Christian theology expands from the revelation of Scripture and moves away from the holy God, the holy people, and the holy land. And I want to show you how that happens. I have a little chart here. I should have printed the chart out for you. But if we take the original biblical framework, there is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who becomes, by expansion in the apostles, 
the God of Israel and the Gentiles. Paul says, is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Israel and the Gentiles. To the church saying, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds good, but we just dumped Abraham and Israel out of the equation. So if in your speaking and in your language, you never say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel is my God, you have moved to, I believe in God and His Son Jesus, and that can be completely devoid of who the Holy God is and who the people are. In terms of the people, they were called the children of Israel. And then... Paul expands that and says, Jews and Gentiles are the people of God. See the expansion, not the replacement? But then we come and say, Christians are the people of God. And we have now eliminated Israel as the people of God. See how that works? It's all done linguistically. Little shortcuts. We, we take God's primary focus of who He is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Israel. And instead of just including us, we replace them with us. And finally, the issue of the land. The land of Israel is what the prophets talk about constantly. That God will, in a sense, remove them from the land. He will then take away their sin and bring them back into the land. And that will be the vindication of who the God of Abraham is before the nations. And we move that to, well, it's the promised land and the earth. Because after all, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then we now have it where, who cares about Israel except for the holy places? We have some crusader mindset in us. Uh, and uh, we really are really about the earth, and maybe not even the earth. We're all going to heaven. So what we have done is, we have moved away from the holy God, the holy people, and the holy land, as central to the message of the book, to this kind of watered down. It shouldn't be watered down, it should be an expansion to that, with that as central, but we have turned it into a replacement. And that becomes a problem. So, the kingdom of God is not of this world. And yet, the kingdom, the scripture says, will be restored to Israel, and the nations shall be ruled by the Messiah, and he is the Messiah of Israel. And the Bible expresses this in terms of Israel being scattered among the nations, and then being brought back into the land. Now, we can look at this a couple of ways. Israel will be removed from the land. God will purge their sin and return them into the land by regathering. And the regathering includes the resurrection so that it, all of Israel will participate. That's the dry bones thing. These are the whole house of Israel. It's not a symbolism of returning present living Jews to Israel. It's a story that God's going to raise all the dead of Israel and bring them into the land and they will participate in the kingdom that He promised. So, there's two ways for us to look at this. One is that that is the central focus and we are added to that or we are now the primary focus of God and they better get themselves in here with us. 
which has been the replacement theology of the kingdom. But, but Jesus' disciples expected, based on the prophets, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And we have to bring that into our theology. Now, one of the problems of this is what do we do with the fact that Israel has not accepted Jesus as the Messiah? Well, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11, and he says that in part they have been blinded so that we would accept the gospel. And then he will bring all Israel to faith, and so we are not to boast against those branches. Because God is able to bring them in and he won't turn them into Christians. He will turn them into the fullness of Israel and we will be gathered into that context. That's why I think we need to think of the gathering not only as the gathering of Israel, but our gathering together. In Second Thessalonians, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by our gathering unto the Lord. When the Lord gathers Israel... He will also gather us. And the gathering then involves the resurrection and the second coming. Now I've been asked by many of you to um, do a series on kind of heaven and hell and death and what goes on in that context. And I'll be doing that after the first of the year. Uh, But a lot of that depends on how you see the restoration of the kingdom in that sense. So Israel, the people in the land, are central to our faith and theology. And we see the kingdom of God as not of this world, but ready to be revealed in the fullness when the Lord returns. When he raises the dead, when he gathers Israel back to the land, and he gathers us with them to him. And I know many of you have been taught that in 1948, God fulfilled his promise of bringing Israel back into the land. And that is simply not true. It may be a foreshadowing of it, but they're supposed to come back into the land and live in peace. And if you've been paying attention at all since 1948, there has not been much peace. And even this weekend, there has been rumblings out of the Middle East about very serious uh, concerns. So, the kingdom of God focuses on Jerusalem and the promised land, and we have to begin to reread the scriptures, particularly the prophets and the New Covenant writings or the New Testament writings with that in mind. Because the tendency is to read them as if they were directly written to us. And they were written to others with us included. And that's a different mindset. So let me move to the diaspora nationalism thing because this is particularly problematic for Americans and then we'll help with the idea of private and public, which I'm getting to. Within Judaism, the idea of diaspora nationalism is relatively clear. For Judaism, God promised a land. God brought them out of Egypt into the land with Joshua, you recall, and they united the land to its fullest extent under David and Solomon, and that became the kingdom that will be restored. God will raise up the tent of David again. The branch, the Messiah, will be the ruler. So within the land, the promised land, and that land really goes from the border of 
uh, Egypt, uh, below the Gaza Strip, all the way up past uh, Baghdad. It's a big land that's promised to Abraham and at this point has never been fulfilled. Okay? Moses told them, you will not keep my commandments, the Lord's commandments, and he's going to scatter you among the nations. And so uh, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom was scattered among the nations and exiled into Babylon. And then a small group of them came back into the land. This is the diaspora. This is the land. In the land, a small group came back and Jesus appeared at that time to give them the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that all that the prophets had said was going to be done, the sin of Jacob would be removed and they would be returned to the land. And then he rose from the dead and he told his disciples, now go out among the nations and preach the gospel. Who was he telling them to preach the gospel to? The dispersed of Israel. The Great Commission was not a now go get the Gentiles. I know we've been taught that that's what it is. But if you read the book of Acts, they didn't do that. In the book of Acts, they gave the message. (coughs) Excuse me. They gave the message to the Jews. And they were going to go among the dispersed of Israel and say the good news is the kingdom's about to be done, just like John the Baptist did. Make straight the ways of the Lord. We're going to be brought back in for the kingdom. Now, two things happened in that. One happens early in the book of Acts when Peter is invited to go speak to a group of Gentiles. And when he does, all of a sudden they believe and he doesn't know what to do with them. Now, if he had interpreted the Great Commission the way we interpret it, he would have known exactly what to do with him. But he didn't interpret it that way. None of the disciples interpreted it that way. And so they said, what do we do with these goys? What do we do with these Gentiles? I baptize them. Okay, well, it's just a few. It'll be okay. Then the Apostle Paul comes along and the Lord says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So that Paul will say, I'm the Apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Because the disciples are supposed to go to the Jews. And Paul says, I'm going to go to the Jew first and also the Gentile. That's the whole context of Romans. Because he says, I know something that the others didn't know. He talks about this in Ephesians and Colossians. There is a mystery in the gospel. There's a secret. There's a hidden thing in the gospel. And that is that the Gentiles are going to also be given that message and they are going to come to the Messiah of Israel. And when God gathers Israel back from the diaspora, the Gentiles are coming with them. And he goes up to speak to the, to the apostles and they agree with him and say, okay, that's great. Then they had to figure out what do we do with these guys? And that's what the Acts 15 council is about. Do they have to be circumcised? No. They don't become Jews. Uh, They have to obey some of the commandments. Yes. Okay, which ones? And how will they know which ones? And all of that is settled in Acts 15. And at that point, 
What we have is we have a very small group of Jews in the land and a large number of Jews out in the diaspora and Gentiles who are coming to the Lord. And then the destruction of the temple throws the rest of the Jews out into the diaspora. And they have been out here ever since from the original with one remnant going back before Jesus and a small remnant back in the land now. But not based on faith, based on politics. So we are still in the diaspora process. So for Judaism, this thing is really easy. In the land, nationalism. That will be the kingdom. Out of the land, we are in diaspora. We live in the nations, but not as the nations. What about the church? Well, the church, as it's separated from Israel, had to think about this differently. So how did they do it? They said, well, the commission says, make the nations Christian. We have a story to tell to the nations that will turn their heart to the right. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring the gospel to the nations. The nations will be converted, not individuals. The nations will be converted. Their governments will become Christian and we will have Christian nations. Something the Bible never addressed. And so Europe began to create the idea of Christian nations. And America saw that Christian nations where one church group controlled the Christians was not good. So America said, we won't make it a Christian nation. We will make it a nation of Christians. And we will allow religious freedom so that Jews and Christians can be free in this land to worship God as they choose and they won't be persecuted because they have a slight different doctrine or a slight different practice. And so that made America somewhat different in that context and that's why America is more Judeo-Christian and less replacement than Europe was. But we still have a sense among us, of those who are nationalists and those who are diaspora. So what's the primary difference between a nationalistic Christian and a diaspora Christian? A nationalistic Christian is going to be political for the purpose of, ex- of extending the kingdom of Christ. And the diaspora Christian is going to be relational for, for the purpose of drawing people into the kingdom. One will use the political system. I'm going to vote Christian. I'm going to enforce Christianity. We're going to make it a theocracy, a thing that we're now worried about Islam doing. This came out of Jerry Falwell and Kennedy and those guys. Uh, And and, uh, um, focus on the family. Yeah. So, and then the other side is the ones who say, We are not of this world. We are not of this culture. We are going to redeem as many people in this culture as we can, gather them into diaspora congregations, awaiting the time of that. And we will be private congregationally and public in our proclamation of the gospel. You see that distinction? There is no privacy on this side because we're going to take control of the culture and then the culture will bow to Christ. In the diaspora one, We will hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock of the congregation and we will step out and be light and salt into the communities that we are hoping to draw people 
to us in that framework. They are very different strategies of ministry and occupying until the Lord comes. Which brings us to why we are private. Now, when we talk about private and public, I have to make a distinction between private and secret. A secret thing is something that is hidden and kept from others. And in, the, in biblical times and in biblical terminology, an item that is secret is hidden and covered, waiting for the time when it will be revealed. Okay? This is the kind of terminology that says, when you pray, when you do your alms, do them in secret. Do them where they are covered so that your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The idea of a mystery that will be revealed at its appropriate time is the idea of a secret and an unveiled revelation. But the biblical terms used for privacy is about focusing on those who need to be told something. So if I said uh, to Brian, Brian, uh, come here a second. And we went in here and I told him something. Am I telling him a secret? No. I am telling him something that is specifically for him. So the idea of a private notion, and the Bible is filled with this, with Jesus pulling his disciples over privately to tell them things that he's not telling the general public. There are things that are, be, that are said in the open and there are things that are said privately because what is private is for that person or group. So the purpose of the congregation is to speak to the people of God specifically what God wants for them. The proclamation of the gospel is public because it is given to all men that they might come to the Lord. But we began to move the church services from speaking to the congregation to speaking to the visitors and then marketing the church for visitors and discipleship went away. And we lost the focus of protecting the integrity of the congregation and speaking directly to the disciples. So that's a big difference. Households are private. Marketplaces are public. Houses aren't secret. And public places revealed. They are, one is for anybody who's there, and the other one is for this specific group. So, membership groupings are private, but businesses are public. Private groupings allow guests, but they have restricted access. You will go places where someone will say, employees only, right? Uh, or, that's mom and dad's room, you don't go in there, right? Those are private, uh, not secret. A secret is waiting to be revealed. Private is, this is for a specific purpose, and specific people have access to it. Public meetings are open to all and fall into a distinct legal category. So, 
The implications of the public-private distinction are really becoming important in our culture at the present time. And the issue is not membership or secrecy. The issue is the services. Most congregations have public services. We have private services. Now, by private, I mean our services are for our members and their guests. What is a guest? A guest is someone who is your friend or your family, uh, who is visiting, who are also believers, who, who are, have a similar mindset, and they're welcome all the time because this focuses to them as well as you, right? But it is not public. We're not just letting anybody in, and we're not speaking to them. There are most churches today have public services, and so most of the messages are geared down to the visitors or the seekers, and no depth comes from the messages because they are public. Now, the, the danger is this. Our government controls the public arena. And as a diaspora congregation, when you enter into this facility, as when you enter into our homes, you enter into the kingdom of God. You notice there is no American flag in this sanctuary. You are not in America. You are in the kingdom of God. I want that to sink in because there are a lot of churches that have the American flag on their platform because they are Christian nationalists, but they would never, if they were in Russia, want a Russian flag on their, on their platform or a Cuban flag on there. We've had the luxury of that because it didn't matter, but it's starting to matter. And so the distinction between private and public has major implications. It does with regard to marriage. It does with regard to speech. It does with regard to parenting. It does with regard to education. It does with regard to almost everything that we hold dear in the kingdom. And we are beginning to see a government that is using the public arena to push religious expressions further and further out of the public arena. And they are reaching into the churches because they're public to control them. And I have seen this coming for a long time. And that's why the Disciple Center went private with a public ministry rather than public ministry in the private context. Private worship accommodates and looks to God. Public worship looks to and accommodates visitors. The American legal system makes a distinction between public and private so that public may not discriminate. So a church that has a public service, if they allow married couples and heterosexual couples to hold hands during the service, and a gay couple comes in and holds hand during the service, and the pastor says, you can't do that here, they will lose the lawsuit because it's a public service and you cannot discriminate. But a private service, we can say how you have to dress when you come in, how you have to talk when you come in, and whether you have access to it. But you can't do that with a public service. Churches that have allowed secular weddings 
are going to not be allowed to have only religious weddings because they have been public with regard to weddings. And the court systems are beginning to go in that direction. The public serves everybody equally. The private serves the membership. So, as America becomes less tolerant of religion in the public space, the protection and integrity of private congregations is going to become more specific, more significant. So we are private for the sake of ourselves and our children. And the implications may be difficult for some of our fellow Christians and family to understand. It's best understood in the difference between a home and a hotel. A home is private, can be adjusted to the family, especially the children, as it needs. Guests are brief visitors and less frequent. But a hotel is public, and it's designed for the comfort of visitors in general who come and go as they want, requiring the hotel to focus on the needs of the guests for the purpose of commerce. The government has a major interest in what is done in the public system and tends to control it more towards the public need rather than the private. Now, I am talking to pastors a lot, and they are renting buildings. They have spaces similar to ours, and the cities are not allowing them to do the ministry they want because the ministry they want are public services. And they are being told that they can only have their members and their staff in the building until 6 p.m. We don't have that issue because we don't have anything public. We're private. When we go public, we go public. And by keeping that distinction, we protect ourselves as much as we can in this present increasingly hostile environment. So the Disciple Center is first and foremost, this is my conclusion, the Disciple Center is first and foremost a part of the kingdom of God and not of this culture or nation. Our purpose is private and theological and our meetings and gatherings are exclusively or primarily for that purpose, which is discipleship, I'll talk about that later, in the kingdom of God, under the lordship of the Messiah of Israel. Our congregational services are private, which means they are for members and their guests. Guests usually include visiting family and friends or Judeo-Christians who we believe can be benefited from and of benefit to our membership by joining with us in a congregational purpose. We also understand that the private congregation is best able to navigate the concept of the diaspora both in a friendly and in a hostile public environment. I'm going to address later the public ministry aspect, but obviously I didn't have time to address that today. So let's pray, and then we'll do the Q&A.